feel even more uncomfortable than I do right now. Great. Um, I want to simply add to what others have already said. Uh, it's so great to have you here on this uh, special day. If you are a guest, this is one of your first time here, I hope you'll come join us. Just take the risk of joining in in a large room with a bunch of strangers. And I think, I hope you will judge us by this event, but maybe I would prefer you not judge us by this event. I'm not sure. It brings out some of the most interesting in us, and it is one of the great moments to say how much we value our children and teens and how incredible it is to be part of a church that wants to allow our teens to move into these moments where lives can be transformed by the amazing good news of the gospel. So please come join us. We would love to have you there. Um, I don't have any uh, a way to step in. I had somebody before the service challenge me to weave in references to Chile uh, throughout my message. I, I didn't have time enough to do that. Uh, the only thing that came to mind was my grandpa a long time ago I just always remember him. He had this quirk anytime it was cool outside. He would just make the statement, chilly today, hot tamale. And I just remember that as being one of my grandpa's slogans of life or something. So there are no references to that at all. Um, in fact, I actually have a few other caveats that I would like to um, um, say before I get into the text that you just heard read. Uh, uh, heard read. Thank you. Trey and Dylan for doing that. I appreciate you reading it. Um, the passage, Mark chapter 13, it's the last of this portion of the series in Mark. We make a shift um, during the month of November and step into the book of Hebrews. We'll have one visit that we'll come back to Mark um, one more time in the future. But this kind of brings to at least at some level some closure um, to this portion of looking at Mark, which seems very appropriate in that I have contended that Mark is one of the most political books of Scripture. And this ends right at the time where we're about ready to vote. Some of us may have already done that by mail-in ballots, but it seems an interesting closure to this, stepping right into the uh, elections that take place. So I, here's my caveat on some of the things that will be said this morning. Um, I, I gave my self-introduction, as I sometimes do, about being one of the pastors here. That's a real important moniker, particularly for this morning. Because this morning, among other things, I'll make some comments about our nation and our culture's economic stances. And I want to make it very clear up front that I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be. I don't know all of the nuances of economics. But certainly some of the statements I make will have implications about that. If you are an economist, fantastic. I know we have a few in our uh, congregation. You're more than welcome to send me your comments during the week of what I misrepresented. That's fine. I also want to say, though, not just that, there are a couple comments this morning that are political in nature. And I am neither a politician nor a political scientist. Some are who are part of our congregation, and I'm thrilled for that. I think that that's a wonderful vocation to pursue. 
Um, I want you to know that I'm not, but I certainly will make some statements this morning that tap into the sensitive area of politics. I, I want to go a step further and say that um, I am also not an academic theologian. I certainly love theology and love studying scripture, but we have numerous people in our congregation that is their life calling. And I am not that. But I will certainly make some statements this morning that have some very deep theological implications to them. So I want to go back to how I introduced myself. What I am is very simply one of your pastors. And when you hear this morning as we dig into Mark chapter 13, I hope, I pray, that you'll hear it simply from a pastor's heart. I'm not trying to be things that I'm not, but I wrestle deeply with the things that come out of Mark chapter 13. I also feel like that I... I realize and need to say something that I heard my mom say over and over again. I don't think that this line is original to her, but because I heard her say it all the time, I feel like I need to put her name down at the bottom with a little dash in front of it, quoting my mom when she would say, well, Dee, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And sometimes I know I have just a little bit of knowledge in some areas that cause me to think and dig deeper, but I also know it's dangerous to think that the conclusions I come to are the end of things, not the beginning of conversations and thoughts. I also, as a brief aside, my, um, my mother's anniversary of her passing is Tuesday. So my mind and heart are on her a bit. Two days after that is All Saints Day. And I think very often in this congregation of how many of us have had someone we love who has passed away. And it seems to me, I don't know if it's true for you, but it seems to me that very often the anniversary of those dates sometimes bring more reflection, maybe even more grief than the memorial service might have of that particular person's uh, death. Those funeral services often come at a time when there is so much to do that it's at times a welcome distraction. But as the years pass, sometimes those anniversaries evoke memories and thoughts and reflections. And I pray for you. I keep in my files memorial folders and um, things that were read during some of those times for some of you. And I pray that God gives you opportunity this week, maybe on All Saints Day, to remember those who have gone before us, on whose experiences we stand, on whose memory we reflect. Because it's important to do that. 
And I will be thinking of you this week, the many of you who have lost somebody very, very close to you. This particular timing reminds me of the election cycle that we're in, as I just said, and the many things that we're trying to consider. We have all kinds of proposals on the ballot in our area, our neck of the woods. We have all kinds of bond issues that we're trying to decide how we spend our money and what's the most prudent way to do that. The money that comes in from taxes that we pay into the system. We have proposals that have to do with how people who are on life support um, and those who provide those services, how those are handled. We've got initiatives regarding children hospitals and daylight savings time and um, numerous proposals that grab our attention, probably more so if they are things that directly affect us. In addition to that, we have elections that are taking place for many very important positions, and we have an opportunity to participate in this, to cast our vote. I hope you do. I hope you take it as the privilege that it is. I'm glad we have that privilege. It gives us a voice. I know it's possible, as you've heard before, that you could look at the statistics and say, really, does one, one vote matter? And I think that if we recognize that collectively our votes matter, then one vote does matter. And periodically, we'll have elections that really do come down to just a few votes. So I hope you participate. I really do. Does Scripture itself give us any direction on how to participate? I hope you've heard me enough to know that I think it gives us a lot of direction. And as we dig into this passage in Mark chapter 13, I hope you'll find something that might help you in the process as well. I would like up front, though, to acknowledge a couple of my biases. They're essential because of how we approach this passage in Mark matters in regard to our biases, and I just want to acknowledge some of mine up front. One of my biases is that I appreciate the form of government that we have in this particular country. It's not the only possible form of government, and I'm not saying that it is the form of government that ought to be used globally. I am just confessing that I love the privileges that come with the democracy, where I have the privilege of, allowing to, uh, of being allowed to offer my voice to make a vote that there is some type of representation that takes place for those who are being governed by those who are being governed. And I greatly appreciate this form of government. I will also confess that I appreciate greatly the economic system that we have in place, that there are free markets and a capitalistic approach to the possibilities that we can own property, that we can own production and the means of production of those things that help us to live and help us to live better. 
I would contend that globally where it has been allowed to be used in an appropriate fashion that free markets and a capitalist approach have raised the standard of living for so many around the globe. It's not the only way to do things and I don't know that it's the best way everywhere. I am just telling you that up front, I value it greatly because of what I have seen it do in terms of raising standards for so many people. Now, one of the reasons that I like these two concepts combined is that I feel like, as I understand the free markets and capitalism, that if there is not some rule of law that limits the way it works, then a very natural outcome of markets and capitalism is that eventually those who have begin to control the markets. And it ceases being a completely free market because inherent in the nature of the system is the notion of profit. And profit just naturally ties into a human tendency toward greed. And as a result, there is inherent in the system a temptation to tap into the addictive qualities that sometimes rule all of us. To make my product one that you crave week after week, month after month, year after year. To tap into the addictive qualities of certain products so that I am guaranteed income that happens all of the time. And to do so in ways that are really not fair to you, but simply lend themselves to my success. In order to cap that possibility, to set boundaries, the rule of law draws us to a place where we protect that manipulation. We keep that from allowing some to so control the markets that a few prosper and many are hurt. So democracy gives us that possibility of the people voting so that the majority can speak into the system and set limits and boundaries of what can do good, but what also could do great harm without those limitations. Well, then I at least have to ask the question, what protects us from some of the inherent problems of democracy? Because it has some flaws as well. A pure democracy allows for the people, the majority, to vote. And when the majority speak, there is the great potential for those who aren't the majority to be left out of the laws and decisions that protect. For the majority to rule implies then that those who are in the minority have less of a voice and in some cases could be left with no voice 
because of what the majority chose to do. So we wrestle with what are the balances that happen with democracy. We try and put together a form of government that provides for some balance in that representation. We have a constitution and a bill of rights that attempts to protect the rights of those, even if they're in the minority, all of those things fall into place to try and help us with systems that aren't perfect. They may have some great goodness to them, but they're only good in terms of how they are used. What a long way to get to this passage, and how in the world does this relate to Mark chapter 13? I'd like to make one more comment before we look at the specific passage itself. And that is that I think it matters how we come to Scripture. For me, the big caution of how I read the Word is this. Am I coming to Scripture with my own agenda? And I am, am I aware of the agenda that I am bringing to Scripture? We all have biases. We all have thoughts. We go to Scripture and we find verses that support that that affirm the way I think, that justify my conclusions, that help me to land in a particular place, and in landing there, I have the scriptures that support exactly what it is that I believe. That can be rather dangerous, particularly if I am unaware or don't acknowledge the biases that I have or the agenda that I have. So it's easy, after having talked about some of my biases, to then go to scripture and say, and where do I find something to support this? The other posture is to go to Scripture and say, Oh, Lord, help me with my biases, my agenda. Tell me what your word says. Help me to be willing to let my way of thinking be challenged, to be put before your spotlight, to show its flaws, to show the ways in which I'm self-serving. Well, I hope, I pray, that in getting into Mark chapter 13, that that's been the posture I've tried to take, because some of the things I've already shared have not been naturally the things I think, but actually have been the result of digging into Mark 13 and what precedes it to get to me, get me to this place. Mark 13 tells us, of Jesus with his disciples. And he's talking about chaos that is coming. Problems that are just around the corner. In fact, they've already started. Keep in mind that Jesus, at the time of Mark's writing and Mark's immediate audience, though we are still part of that audience, but his immediate audience was a little over 30 years after Jesus had passed away also after Jesus was resurrected. But 30-some years have passed, almost a generation, but not quite. There were still many who had walked with Jesus, who had been Jesus' disciples. Into this setting, Mark is relaying the words of Jesus that really seem so appropriate for the people that he's writing to at that time. There were wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes. There was famine that took place that is well documented in several historical books. 
We have nation rising up against nation, people against people. That was the setting for what was taking place when Mark wrote. Now, I'm not saying that some of this might relate to what's going in our journey today, because certainly we have nations who are rising up against nations and people who are rising up against people and families who are divided. That certainly takes place today, but the readers during that first century would certainly feel like the words of Jesus were relevant to what they were experiencing. So let's talk about what they are experiencing for just a few moments. We have great anger and frustration among the Jewish people because they were under foreign rule. Rome was in charge. As a result of that, people said this is not right. We need to fight against this because even though they've allowed us to continue some of the things that we do in our worship practices and the way in which we live and structure our daily life, those that rule over us may eventually take that away. And there were rebels among the Jewish people who believed that what was most appropriate was an uprising to take back our sovereignty. And the kind of uprisings that were taking place caused Rome to be frustrated at the actions of the people. And there was a military initiative sent by Rome into Judea to take over Jerusalem and the people, whatever it took. What they underestimated was the resolve of some of the Jewish rebels. Because even though they were terribly outnumbered, their tactics and their fighting pushed the military offensive that had come from Rome back. They didn't make it inside the city walls. In fact, they retreated and they were pursued by the rebels as they retreated. It appeared in every way that God had performed a miracle because this battle was out of proportion. But they were certain that Rome would send someone back again. And so the rebels saw this as a great recruitment tactic. So among the Jewish people, they were recruiting people from every tribe. Come and join us. This is our moment. God is with us. We will push back Rome. We will take back sovereignty of our land. Sure enough, there was a second offensive that came, led by another military leader, this time far more prepared for the rebels, pushed through Judea, made it all the way to the city walls of Jerusalem, and then mysteriously retreated. It made no sense because they weren't failing in battle. It seemed like the end was near, but they retreated. This seemed like the second miracle of God's protection of the Jewish city, of the temple, of the people. What they didn't know was, at least at that moment, that Caesar had died. And the people vying for power, they needed to call the military back for a couple of reasons. One was to keep control 
So they brought the military back, but secondly, that the leader of that military initiative was one of the options to take over as the new Caesar. And in fact, that's what took place. It's in this time that we believe that Mark's gospel is written and sent out to the people. A time when the rebels are ecstatic about God's protection. Look at how God is affirming what we are doing. Come join us, and we will make sure that we never get invaded again. We will be sovereign once again. And they were recruiting people from Mark's faith community. There are also others who believe just the opposite, that going along with Rome was the right move. Rome provided stability. Rome provided governance. They provided a military presence that would keep them from being at war. Rome was allowing them to engage in the practices of their faith and to preserve at least some of the practices of their identity. Rome will give us a good economic structure and a base. And there's some who were in power because of what Rome did. And so their desire was to go along with what Rome was doing. Jewish people against Jewish people. This divided families. Brother against father, mother against daughter. Family member against family member, neighbor against neighbor. There were wars. There were rumors of wars. People were rising up against one another. This was the time of chaos, where it felt like the fabric of the community was imploding. And described at the end of the passage that was read as the beginning of birth pains, the beginning, not the end. This was not the end where all things would be transformed. This was the beginning of it falling apart. The potential for the disciples to recognize something that was brand new. Because in Jesus' words, as Mark depicts them, Jesus was not taking sides with either group. There was a huge caution about the method of rebellion, as well as a recognition that the rule of Rome was not right or righteous. The problem depicted is that just changing the players in power doesn't move something from unrighteous to righteous, from not being good to being good. Until an understanding of power is changed, we're just changing the players. And the storyline is the same. The words of Jesus push against the notion that there are only two ways to look at the issue. What had resulted in this time was such an extreme polarization of two political viewpoints that were so different from one another. I can't imagine a culture or a time where politics would get that polarized. It just is beyond me. Really? No reaction at all? Son against father? 
mother against daughter, neighbor against neighbor. We're called into a place where we're called to vote and take up sides. Jesus, I think, is saying in this passage that in this place, there's another way to look at this. It is to understand that power is not about my privilege, my rule. The exchange of the characters just means somebody else gets to exhibit the kind of control that the previous group got to exhibit. I think it's inherent to us. My girl, when she was a four-year-old and we'd have a babysitter come over, on several occasions, she would just look at the babysitter and as boldly and as strongly as she could say, she would say, you're not my boss. Actually, that's my paraphrase. Her language, she said, you're not the boss of me. And if I heard it, I would have to correct her and say, no, Sutton, during the three hours that mom and dad are gone, this person is the boss of you. She knew that being the boss had its privileges. And she thought our departure meant she got all the privileges while we were gone. That's our posture for many things. You're not the boss of me. Jesus, as he leads up to this passage, has confronted the Roman power rule and has also confronted the Jewish temple rule. Several weeks ago, when we were looking at Mark chapter 11, verse 7, Jesus quotes both Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says, my house is intended to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. The first half of that is from Isaiah. The second portion is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. It's a powerful passage that says you've turned this place into a machine for your purposes, for your use, for your benefit. He's not condemning the temple. He's saying the way in which you've used your power of the temple being the centerpiece of not just religious life, but economic, political, even family life, was the temple. And you've turned it to be something for your benefit. In Jeremiah chapter 7, I felt like reading it was for me the best thing before voting because it talks about how impossible it is for God to bless when we have not acted justly toward each other, when we've not taken care of the widow or the orphan, when we've not concerned ourselves with the poor, when we have lived our lives in ways that dishonor God's creation, blessing becomes impossible. It is a call from God to say, wake up. 
In fact, at the end of that passage, God says, I've been watching. Jeremiah 7, 11. In a similar fashion at the close of Mark 13, verse 33, Jesus says to the disciples, stay awake, be watchful, pay attention. How many times have I found it so convenient to be asleep when my privileges and benefits are intact, but someone else's are not? It's easy for me to rest when I know that there's no threat to the way I live. But how easy is it for me to be silent and quiet and asleep when someone else doesn't feel safe, when someone else doesn't feel protected. Jesus calls us to stay awake, to stay alert, to look at the ways in which the world around us needs us to participate needs us to engage because the notion of power only changes when we understand that power by itself leads to disastrous consequences if it's not infused completely with love. We've said in the last few weeks that the reason we desperately need laws is because love hasn't ruled in our life because there is no law that governs love. The lack of love is why we desperately need laws. So this huge book of laws that dominates our country, if you want to ask the question, why are there so many, I would simply say, well, if we started acting from a posture of love, we wouldn't need all of those laws. What would it look like if the faith community stepped into that place and said, my actions are going to be based on the kingdom of God living in me and through me. And in so doing, live a life that looks out for others and uses the power I have for love. You might offer the supposition, well, if I were in those places of power, I would do it differently. I think Jesus tells us throughout the Gospels that you are in those places of power wherever you are, in your family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in the marketplace, you have that voice. Does it stay asleep or does it speak up? Does it step into opportune moments and offer a sacrifice of love? Or does it simply look for ways to regulate? We vote on regulations. I think it's good to vote. We vote on politicians. I think it's good to vote. But I want to tell you that simply changing the players doesn't change anything. What changes is when we've decided with the power we have to allow heaven to kiss earth. To allow the kingdom of God to begin to take root wherever we are. In those places, the kingdom of God begins to work in a different way. That doesn't find its allegiance 
to one particular viewpoint, but simply ask the question, does this viewpoint reflect an infusion of God's love into a system that without love will fall apart? And so as political as I can get, I beg you to look at Mark 13 and offer a prayer, O Lord, in the midst of what we face. Give me a love that knows no law. Give me an action that takes my words and puts them into practice. Let the Let the dark places of my heart begin to transform through your grace so that I can start using the currency of forgiveness and patience and long-suffering. Give me a vision of hope that sees a better future than we have right now. Help me to value what has gone before, but help me to hope in something that's not yet come. Help me to live into these places not with my own resources, but with the eternal resources that you provide. May our prayer be, O Lord, keep us awake, that we see not only on behalf of ourselves, but we see on behalf of the other. Father, I pray in these moments that you will watch over us, challenge us, Challenge us to wake up, not simply when our own benefits are being challenged. Though, Lord, if that's what calls us to action, let it just be a beginning point. Let it be a beginning point where we recognize that there are others who may be threatened, others who may be hurting, people with no voice, voting and taking action on behalf of children, on behalf of those in need, on behalf of those who are aliens. Lord, how do we we live so that people can taste heaven in our actions? They can smell the fragrance of grace in our words. For there is no shortage of the resources of compassion and kindness. We won't run out, Lord, because the more we participate and give, the more you pour into our life. The more we offer words of affirmation, kindness, and help, the more you fill us with the capacity to hold your agenda, your love, and your grace. So lead us, Lord, into being incredibly political creatures who live out our faith wide awake in everything we do. Thank you, Lord. Amen.